Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about I wrote two columns. The first covered how politicians are continuing to lag behind the American public in responding to this virus. The second one was talking about all the unknowns that we have on reopening the economy right now, both the good and the bad. And then finally, in the newsletter that went out on Friday, I talked about why the United States needs to act now in containing the World Health Organization. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can make sure to go and get all that for your email inbox by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link there. There is a link to that and to the show notes as well, as well as the columns that I just mentioned. And if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find us in the iTunes algorithms and lists, and I look forward to to hearing from you guys in those reviews. This week's show is, again, covering the continuing impacts of the coronavirus. The country as a whole appears to be past this initial peak. There's good news on the testing front for the first time in several weeks, and we finally have the economy beginning to reopen. But first, I want to touch briefly on the newest allegations surrounding Joe Biden, I have a column coming out tomorrow. I'm recording this late Sunday night, so this will come out late Monday, I believe, is when this column is going up. But it talks about how this is this Joe Biden scandal involves Me Too and how this appears to be the end of the Me Too movement and its overall political impact, at least when you look at how the media is covering this right now. So if you haven't heard, because the coronavirus is covering just about all news coverage right now, but if you hadn't heard, Tara Reid is a former staffer for then-Senator Joe Biden. The allegations go back to the early 90s. She alleges at one point when she brought Biden his gym bag, as requested by the staff, that he ended up groping, fondling, and doing worse to her and violating her uh, against her will and when he, while he was a senator in the early 90s. So the, the allegations that come from this, they were dropped, and then the media basically went radio silent on them. You saw some of the coverage in places like Fox News, Slate, and a few others, they covered this. But for the most part, all the other mainstream outlets, places where you would expect big news like this to drop, like the New York Times, CNN, places like that, they went radio silence on this story. Only recently, in the last few days, have you seen them begin to pick up on this. And one of the main reasons that that's happened is that Tara Reid's mother called into the Larry King show in 1993 and was complaining then, it was a vague charge, but she was complaining that her daughter was getting mistreated by a prominent politician, and other than going to the press, they didn't know what to do. There was no other recourse for her daughter. Now, Tara Reid confirmed on Twitter via a tweet that this was her mother's voice. 
So we know her mother did make this complaint. So that gives us some form of a contemporaneous confirmation that something happened during this time. Now, this call didn't allege anything along the lines of sexual assault, obviously, but it does give us this moment in time where we know something happened to her and a prominent politician was involved. She says it was Joe Biden. So we don't, now that we have this this moment here on the Larry King show, and King went on to discuss this question with the panel, they, they didn't go into anything in depth with this, with Tara Reid's mother, but this is something here where we have confirmation here. So it is more than what you would have during the Kavanaugh allegations and everything that came out there. Now, you might think, since this was the Larry King show that was involved and he was on CNN for all those years, that CNN journalists might be the one to have dug this up. And you'd be wrong on that. CNN did not uncover this. People went back through the Google Play uh, archive of the Larry King show and found this clip of Tara Reid's mother, and it was leaked out onto social media where it was then confirmed. So CNN had no part in finding this clip or working with anyone to verify that it was. This was sprung on them. And if you compare this to any of the other things that CNN or any other media outlet has done where they will go into anyone's past and try to find anything to ding them or look for things like this, it is pretty telling that they've had no interest in going back and verifying this type of thing. But now it's on their doorstep, so they are being forced to cover it because it's on their doorstep. Now, it's unclear right now whether or not the main allegation being made by Reed, whether or not that's real or valid, because all we have right now is her word against Biden's word, who, of course, denies this happened, and we have this unclear phone call that something had happened. Now, we know prior to this allegation being made that Reed had said that there was bullying involved and other things of that nature. The sexual allegation came later. She has since filed a complaint with police on the matter. That's all recent. So, there's not a lot of evidence here. But there is more evidence than any single one of the Kavanaugh allegations, whether it was Ford, Ramirez, or Swetnick, and any of the other things that people were alleging at the time. We have more proof just by having this clip from the Larry King show that something went down than any of those. And when those allegations came, the media dropped them on the public immediately with no attempt to verify And this time, and the New York Times in particular drew heat here because they took 19 days to decide to air anything related to these allegations. And we know they took 19 days because they released an interview where they discussed their decision to not run this for 19 days. And they basically just said that there was a difference between Kavanaugh. And now they wanted to make sure that they were right now, but they wanted to make sure the public was informed then. So... It's not much of an excuse. It was a bunch of word salad, but that's what they're going with right now. Going along with this, CNN either had that Larry King, uh, that was either removed by them in the Google Play Store, or they had a technical error where it somehow went down because that episode, the last time I checked and the last time I saw news stories around this, was gone from the Google Play store. And also the episodes have been renumbered to make it appear that that clip had never existed. So 
Either that is a technical error or CNN has removed an entire episode of The Larry King Show of this incident in question. Now, if this was Fox News and they did this, the media would never, ever, ever shut up about that happening. But because it's CNN and it's Joe Biden, we're watching a different set of standards at play here. So you have all these different Me Too allegations here involving a major public figure, and the standards with this are very different. They're even different when you compare how every how Donald Trump was was uh, covered during the 2016 election with all of the excess Hollywood tapes and everything that came out with that, and how they dropped that tape. They interviewed everyone around it. They went and tracked down everyone they can, could immediately. This this got 19 days from some, from New York Times. It was ignored by others. Some places still haven't covered it. And so this is a major story. It's a major allegation, and it's definitely being covered in a different manner. And by doing this, ironically, the media is only dragging out the, the length of time that this is going to impact Joe Biden's campaign. Had they just hit this when it came out, by now we would likely already be past this. But now it's becoming a bigger story because they did not decide to run anything on it. So this is a growing story. When it first came out, I largely ignored it because it was unclear whether or not this was more than he said, she said. And during the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, that was all you needed. We had multiple news stories, multiple punditry columns come out, just talking about how we needed to believe women in every case, even no matter what they said. And when you looked at some of the allegations in the Kavanaugh hearings, that was obviously a bunk standard. They were just trying to make anything stick to take out a Supreme Court nominee. Those same standards are not applying here. They are not saying to believe all women. The New York Times in particular is saying that right here, that they don't believe anything. In fact, they had a deleted passage from their initial story on this that said they could not find any evidence to corroborate that Joe Biden had done anything to read other than the normal regular allegations that you heard before of him touching, kissing, sniffing, and touching women in inappropriate manners. It was a bewildering line because were this any other previous instance, they would use those previous things to say that this particular incident had more credence. So this is a, a, a great example of media bias and how it works. Absolutely perfect example of how different politicians are getting different standards applied to them. And when you look at the Me Too era overall, this is what they were talking about. This was the overarching point that the people who got away with these types of things were people in power who could manipulate the media. We know Harvey Weinstein, the first person who got hit by this and in, in Ronan Farrow's first reports, did exactly this. He manipulated the media. He got NBC to squash this story. We know ABC News did a similar thing for Jeffrey Epstein when he was alive and before those allegations came out. So this has been a, a very regular occurrence here, and in the Me Too movement, a lot of attempts were made to overturn these sorts of things from happening. But here we are with very clear evidence right now that the media is still engaging in these types of behaviors. And so for all of the, the just loud noises 
that they made about how we needed to believe all women when it comes to targeting people who they care about, and in this case, Joe Biden, they are very easily manipulated and trying to push these allegations aside. Now, these could grow up and become a very real problem for the Biden campaign because the media outlets are being forced to cover it now because this is a real story. Other other victims of the Me Too movement overall are siding with Reed in all of this. Rose McGowan, the first person who was involved with... Uh, with one of Ronan Farrow's stories and Harvey Weinstein, she was very supportive of Reed and even tweeted approvingly of Fox News coverage of this story. So the people who were harmed most by Me Too, a lot of these women, they are supporting Reed. And so you're seeing the media turn around and cover this as these people, these women, Democrats are having to grapple with the very hard decision of voting for Biden with these allegations in the air. So it's not with, it's not about Biden having to answer for this. It's for people voting for him anyway. That's the big story of grappling with these very hard decisions. It's anything to shift the focus off of Biden and either onto his voters or to the lack of evidence in this case. So those are the attempts right now. And like I said, this story is building. It could build further. Right now, overall, I don't believe this poses an immediate threat to his campaign. But, and this is the key caveat here, two of them actually, if Democrats and the media want a person other than Joe Biden to be the candidate, and also other than Bernie Sanders, as the presidential nominee for Democrats, they could use this as a means to try to force Biden out of the race and boot him off the ticket at the convention. And so they could use this and say, we can't run against Donald Trump with a person who is credibly accused of sexually assaulting a woman as a sitting senator, and then lying about it, as he's doing right now. They could say that. So right now, everyone's focusing on this as being a general election storyline, and that's it's perfectly tr- it's true. That is probably the, the correct stance to take. But... Stranger things have happened, and you could see if, you know, barring something else happening and making this a bigger story, you could see a move to use this story to leverage Biden out of the race and off the ticket. He doesn't officially have the nomination right now, and everything along these lines, just talking this out, all of this is highly, highly unlikely to happen. But there is this possibility of a primary convention effect for the story where if you wanted to change, you could use this as a means of political leverage against Biden. Otherwise, if that doesn't happen and Biden's the nominee, no matter what, you will end up seeing this become a general election storyline for Donald Trump to hammer him with. This storyline, along with anything related to Hunter Biden, will be the two main drumbeats Trump could use against Biden to just hammer away at his character and sort of try to drag Biden down to the same level that Hillary Clinton was in 2016. Now, whether or not that would be a successful thing to do, I do not know. But with Biden really unable to defend himself right now because he's he just gets no media coverage, and right now the, the little that he is getting is negative just based off this, Trump is dominating the airwaves, almost to a 9-to-1 advantage, I believe I saw the other day. And so that basically means Biden has not switched over to a general election posture. 
The other thing you have to remember is that because Biden is technically still in the primary, he cannot use his funds towards a general election yet. Trump can. He can blast Biden all day long. But according to FEC rules, Biden is stuck right now and has to focus more on a primary stance. So if Trump wants to use this time to to paint the picture of Biden that he wants, he can, in fact, do that. In fact, this happened in 2012 when the Obama cane just hammered away mercilessly at Mitt Romney, and by the time Romney was able to get up and answer with his general election campaign, it was already too late. The Obama campaign had already painted the picture that they wanted everyone to see of Romney, and Romney could not swing back enough. So that's sort of where this story stands. It's it, it could be a very low likelihood of it being a primary conviction story that changes things, but more than likely you will see it become a general election storyline against Biden. So that's what I want to start off with today. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to go through the latest top-line numbers with the coronavirus and then the economy. I mentioned at the top of the show that we had good news this week in the testing results that we've seen. And overall, the United States is in different stages of peak with this virus. So you have some states that are have already hit their peak and they're trending down. You have others who are in the middle of it and some who have not hit peak yet at all. They're still building with overall cases. But what's also happening is that if you look countrywide, testing is also dramatically increasing. So that is the good news. Even though you have the country in all these different stages, as long as testing continues to go up, it means we're going to find these hot spots faster than we would in other situations, especially in the past two months. Before this week, we were largely doing 150,000 tests a day, but that changed this week. Over the last five days, so starting on Wednesday, the average went up. We're now hitting an average of 257,000 tests a day. Now, on Wednesday, that jump alone, we've been, we've been averaging about 150, like I said, but the jump from Tuesday to Wednesday went from 150,000 to 313,000. So if you look at this five-day stretch here, the lowest day is 198,000, and then the high is that day of 313,000. Now, part of the explanation here is that California has changed how they are reporting tests, but that is, does not explain everything that is happening here. A lot of states, you have places like Tennessee, Alabama, and some of these southern states and some of the states around it are hitting things like 10,000 tests a day, 20, 30. Uh, one state, I forget which one it was, I think it was hitting 50,000 a day. So everyone is beginning to pick up their testing numbers for the first time. And so that is leading to an overall increase on the national level. So if it was just California acting funky on this front, you might see weird spikes happen day, you know, every other day while the rest of these states were remaining flat, but that is not the case. All of these other states are also increasing at a very high rate, and if we're averaging 257,000, that gives you about four days to hit a million people tested in under a week, which is just astounding. No other country 
can pull those kinds of numbers off. So that means right now our top line numbers starting at end of day Sunday means that we have done a little over 5.4 million tests which is just phenomenal. If you go back and look at this time last month, so March 26th, 2020, at that point in time, we had done just over a half a million tests, 529,000. So we have almost done 5 million more tests since that point in time. It is just an astronomical number, and if we keep up this average of 257,000, we can do what we it took us all up to the end of March to do in the span of two to three days, which is just remarkable when you start putting that in context. The other piece of good news is that we only have 959,000 positive tests. Now, I expected, if you go back and listen to last week's episode, I expected by the end of this week that we would be, we would already have hit a million tests by now. In fact, I I thought we might hit it by the middle of the week, but we're still under a million, which means two things. One, we're testing a lot more. We're testing people who, we're trying to find the people who are asymptomatic, which is increasing the number of negative tests we're seeing, but we're also seeing a slowdown on the number of positive tests that are coming in overall. Now, we're going to hit, unquestionably, we're going to hit a million tests this week when you're sitting this close. That's just a given at this point. So we're, that will be the, the storyline that I thought would hit this week will be the storyline this week where the United States has a million positive cases of this across the country. That is not the number of active cases. I believe this number is only a cumulative number. So the, the actual number of active cases is going to be lower than that, but probably not too much lower than that overall. So that'll be the storyline this week about how the United States has a million cases. You will probably see some people talk about this in terms of we're being the worst of the country, but you've you've no doubt heard me rant here about how China lied, and there's no need to trust anything that they have. If we have hit a million cases, then there is no telling how many cases that country had they had all of the early reports come out of there about urns, there being just being a ton of urns being used, and the lack of cell phones out there. So there has been a very interesting set of just, you know, ancillary numbers out of China. But if we're going to hit a million, you know they did, because they have a larger population, and this went everywhere, and they didn't have anywhere near the medical technology and the extensive system that we have over here. So that's where we are. We're going to hit a million this week. The deaths, when you start looking at that, the COVID tracking project shows us at around 49,000 deaths. If you look at other numbers, they already have us over 50,000. So that's where we are. The models, they all show right now that we're going to hit somewhere in the 60 to 70,000 death range on there. It looks like we have hit the peak of that, but it also looks like right now if you're just if you're just drawing a trend line, ignoring the models and just sort of drawing a general trend line, we should be at the higher end of that 60 to 70,000 range. I believe one estimate had showed us closer to like 68, 69. And if this continues trending like that, I would not be surprised if we hit that soon. You just need to see a faster drop-off of deaths overall. Right now, we haven't really hit that, even though the peaks are 
are passed just about everywhere. Um, according to the models, we'll jump to that right now, the models show that our peak of deaths right now were likely on April 15th. Now, the last time this model was run, the IHME was on April 21st, so look for an update on that this week. That may show a different peak date, but if our peak was on 415, then we should be trending down, even though we might have high death numbers the highest right now was on the 15th, and everything appears that it's trended down since then. We shall see, though. I don't know how this, this large dump of California numbers is going to affect things. We've seen places like New York change how they count the number of deaths out of this. So that could impact what the system reads as our absolute peak. And in reality, we may not know what our absolute peak day was until after this is all said and done, just because... It's hard for medical professionals to ascertain exactly how many people died from a disease. If you go back and look at the H1N1 flu strain that came out in 2009 and 2010, overall you'll hear people say that around 12,000 people died from that. But in reality, that's given in a range where you have a low end and a high end. I believe the low end is somewhere around 8,000. And the high end was somewhere around the twenty to 30,000 range, I believe. It's been a while since I've looked at that, but there still was a range given. And the reason for that is that you have to sort of figure out who died from the actual virus and who died from underlying conditions that it were exacerbated by the presence of the virus. And so it's sort of a chicken and an egg problem. Why did a person die? And so that's why you get this range here. So all the numbers that you're getting right now are very rough estimates, but they are our best guess. When you hear people sometimes talk about how, you know, the answer to people complaining about China giving fake numbers, they'll point out and say, well, the United States doesn't have good numbers either. And that's true. These are estimates of how many people are dying each day and, you know, everything else along with that. These are our best estimates. But in our case, our data is very noisy. And so you're seeing these different swings in different, in different states reporting differently, which impacts everything. So our data is very noisy and we're trying to read because we're trying to get a very accurate picture of what happens, both on a day-to-day -day basis and overall. China didn't do that. Our, our data is inaccurate within what you would say the margin of error. So if you look, if you were polling someplace, you would expect a margin error of around two to three points. Our margin error on this is probably five to eight points right now, just, you know, guessing. China would say that their data is perfect and they have an under 1% margin of error. And I can just tell you right now, we know that that's wrong and that did not happen. We know that they had a lot more just because every other developed country that has had to deal with this virus, no matter what health systems they have, no matter what their economy looked like, has suffered from this virus. And countries that have been silent about it, places like Iran and Russia, there are reports out of there that show that they are struggling with it too. They're just not reporting what happened. So back over here in the United States, like I said, it looks like we're beginning to shift down onto the backside of this curve as states are experiencing this wave at different times. The overall drop should start to peer, although I think because this is it, not everybody is experiencing this peak all at once. That means our slope down will be a bit more gradual as we wait for some of these other cities to hit their peak and then trend down.
The big problem in all of this is still the combination of New York and New Jersey, who combined for 397,000 of all cases in the United States. Now, remember, I said we had close to a million, 959,000. So the two of those states combined for 41% of all cases across the United States. That is simply astronomical. They uh, Only New York reports their recoveries. New Jersey does not. But if you include New York, you still only have 24,000 recovered, which means we have well north probably right now 350,000 people who have this case right now and are contagious and can spread it. So that is why it is so hard and difficult to get things nailed down there. I saw one estimate in, because it's not hitting New York City all the same, and they showed that if you were in Manhattan, it looked like the peak had already hit and the trend line was already headed down. If you were in the Bronx, it looked like 1 in 598 people had the virus in the Bronx alone, which is an astronomically high number. If you look at the death rate, it looked like around... I think it's around 8 out of every 100,000 people were dying in Manhattan of it. If you jumped into the Bronx, that was closer to 18 to 20, and it looked like the number was climbing. So there are very, very distinct differences, both on race and where you are in some of these communities. If you're in Manhattan, you obviously have richer hospitals. In the Bronx, they do not have that. So it's very interesting to watch some of this take place because there are very clear both class and racial differences in what's happening in New York City alone. Very distinct, and it's the impact of that on the backside is going to have profound impacts on our politics because I know this is also happening in Detroit, too, where the black community there is also suffering from this much more harshly than in other places. So these areas are experiencing much more negative outcomes depending on where you are in the city as a whole. But right now, just combining New York and New Jersey, they are the absolute bulk of where all the cases are in the country. Now, the good news on that front is that the hospitalizations are starting to go down, but you still have a very large number of active cases overall. There was one interesting point on Sunday. Scott Gottlieb, a doctor with the American Enterprise Institute, who's been just, I've, I've linked to him on multiple pieces and tweet threads that he's done in the newsletter. He's just been invaluable throughout this entire situation. He was on CBS this Sunday on their Sunday show where they have all their political guests on to talk about what's happening. And he said something very interesting. He pointed out that we likely have two potential strains of the virus in America. On the West Coast, you have the virus as it arrived over from China. On the East Coast, the more likely culprit was that this came from Europe. Europe, or I would add to that, potentially Iran, because I remember early on, one of the very first cases in New York was a woman who came back from Iran. They didn't say who she was or what she did. I figured it was probably some reporter or something like that. But in any event, you had somebody come from over there, and we know that Iran was struggling already then with the virus, and they have continued to do so since then. So you could be looking at potentially two different strains here. Now, what he pointed out is that if the virus is the same, 
it's not that it's a different strain, but simply that we got this from two different locations. So hopefully the strain isn't different. And if it if but if it is two different strains, that could explain why the East Coast is hurting from this more than what you're seeing on the West Coast. If it's just the same strain and both both side both coasts got it just from different locations, Europe and China, then what that implicates is political leadership. So you have an, in California Gavin Newsom, although his, the numbers out there have been frustrating to read at times, it appears as though his actions have kept the situation from going large. Whereas if you compare that to New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, all the governors and mayors through there look like they failed entirely. Now, in particular, this case, on this case, you would blame Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, and Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, that they have failed to keep this from spreading and there are even some preliminary studies that suggest that Bill de Blasio, in particular, acted later than he needed to. One of the things he probably should have done is either shut down or limit the number of people who were using the subway system because that appears to be the main pathway for through which this thing went through the city. And they just didn't do anything about it. So... That is where you're looking at blaming all these politicians for what happens, if it's the same, if it's the same strain on both coasts. So then you would look at the political response. If it's a different strain, then we could have an explanation for why it's impacted two different subsets of our population so differently. So that is something to watch moving forward. We are obviously sequencing it and studying it on the different coasts. So that is something to watch moving forward. When I get back from this break, we'll hit the economy and talk through all the different things involved there and then wrap things up. We're finally beginning to get the first impacts of states looking to reopen and beginning to enact some of their early phase one reopening plans. Now, the White House set out guidance that sort of showed a three- to four-phase process of reopening the economy, and you sort of look at things every two to three weeks to see how things are going forward. If things look fine, you can move on to the next phase. If they do not look fine, you can either remain at that phase or go back a phase and see and wait things out. So... Some states are beginning to enter into phase one this week, and many more will enter in the weeks to come, especially when you hit the 1st of May. So you have a lot of states involved here, places like Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Tennessee. They've all gotten a lot of attention because they all have uh, Republican governors, and so you've seen a lot in the media who do not want to reopen it and blasting these governors. I think it is somewhat interesting that they're not doing the same kind of coverage of Colorado, who has a Democratic governor and is also deciding to reopen this week. They're covering that a lot more softly, talking about all the precautions that he's taking moving forward. All of these states are taking precautions at reopening, but only a few of them are dominating the headlines. And so that says more about the media than it does anything these states are doing. You do want a tiered process like this. You want some states stepping forward to test out the waters instead of everybody moving forward at at the same time. It makes very little sense for everyone, every single state in the union to step forward and reopen at the same time because everybody would have to adjust at the same time as well. You want a tiered process like this where some are trying this out 
at different stages of the recovery. If this goes well, you will unquestionably see other states follow very quickly. If it's okay for some of these states to reopen, you're going to see many of them reopen very quickly after that, especially if they have the testing capacity. Because the key here is that we are moving more closely to a test and trace system. So if you want to do that, you have to be able not just to test the sick people, you want to be able to find the asymptomatic carriers. There are some states, I know for a fact, that are not doing this. The one that is most notable in my mind is Kentucky, who I keep pointing out is not doing enough testing in their state. And if you compare Kentucky to Tennessee, which a lot of people are doing, Tennessee hit one day where they hit 10,000 tests in a day. And Kentucky has just done over 40,000 tests. Tennessee has done a little over 100,000 more than Kentucky has done overall. I can do Kentucky's entire total in four days at this point, four to five days. So that is a very stark difference. If you're going to reopen, you have to know where both where the sick people are and where the asymptomatic carriers are. And like I said, we're moving into a situation here where we're reopening things and we're reopening with testing. So complete shutdowns, when you're doing that, you're basically only doing that when either you're flying blind and you, you know the virus is out there, but you don't know how prevalent it is, or you're doing it because test and trace is failing. Now, testing and tracing means you test, you find the people who have it positive and are either sick or asymptomatic, and you keep them at, at just at home, and then you figure out who they've been in contact with and then test those people. So it's about tracking down every last potential lead and getting everyone who has been involved or been near a person who has tested positive and make sure they're being tested. And if you do that, you should be able to get down all your problem people. In South Korea, they were able to use test and tracing. They were able to track down the first 30 cases and prevent spread. It was the 31st person, the person who ended up spreading it to what then they estimated to be about 80% of the country. So if you can get it down and get all your super spreaders and get them locked down at home, you can really, really hamper the spread of the virus across any state or any county. So that is where we're moving right now. If a state is reopening, they're basically saying, we're going to test and trace. And you can only do that with high volume testing. Some states can do that, others cannot. If you cannot do the volume part of this, you're kind of stuck. You have to either just choose to reopen and rely on the fact that you've done enough. But in either event, whatever path you decide, you're still flying Blind, So that is going to be the problem when Kentucky eventually hits this situation. They're going to have to decide whether or not they're going to use data or not because there's just simply not enough data there to make a hard conclusion. There is in Tennessee, there is in states surrounding Kentucky, but there is not in that actual state. So we're going back to test and trace. We're no longer going to be flying blind in some of these states, and we're trying to use a system that has test and trace, plus having people wear masks and continue to engage in social distancing. So it's about where we were before all the mandatory shutdowns, except this time we're adding masks and other precautions that people will take. We're not going to know whether or not this works for about five to seven days, because you're going to have the reopen, you're going to have the first people start to go out, so that's going to be at least a two to three day process, 
and then after that you're going to look for any any jumps in the number of cases that you had during that period of time. So that is at least at a minimum a five to seven day process. More than likely for good data, you're talking about 10 to 14 days. So that's why everybody, when you're looking at the phased reopenings here, you're talking about two weeks at a shot because that is the time frame that you need to get good hard data to see whether or not something is working or not. So that is, we only we only have one real good study on this part. It's out of Wisconsin. If you may if you remember, they held an election in April, sorry, during the middle of all of this. On April 7th, they held that. And according to that study, there was no bump in the number of cases that people had overall. They've pointed to, I think it was somewhere around 25 people who they could say they got the virus as a result of the election. It was both between poll election workers and people who went to vote. They could point to about 25 people, but that was not an increase in the overall population. And they said they had about 450,000 people who voted in person. Another 1.1 million people voted absentee. So you had those 450,000 people voting, and of those people who got sick who they think potentially got sick because of that voting, each one of those people also had a potential secondary exposure they could point to apart from the election. So if you can't tie this down to one event, that should have been the number one thing. And I'll link to this in the show notes so you can read it yourself. It was pretty interesting. But if you can't point to that as creating an increased risk, a day of voting, where all these people were outside and waiting to vote and going into these places, then that bodes well for some of these reopenings going forward. So keep watching this. You will obviously learn more as more of these states do this. You have many who are reopening. Places like Florida, Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, they're going to have, all of these places have, for the most part, really good testing numbers. I think Texas could improve a little bit more. But I do know Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee all have strong testing numbers. So we're going to learn pretty quickly in the next two weeks whether or not this is a good step to take. So that is what's watch overall on that front, on the test and trace front. The other thing to watch are bankruptcies moving forward. We, I keep pointing to this because we had a few come up. We had J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, and True Religion Jeans. They have all either said they're filing for bankruptcy or are looking at it. The Associated Press said that there are many others that could follow suit, but it would be several months before you would see those begin to work through the system. Because right now, a lot of these companies are getting by because they've been able to get a loan from the government to cover expenses for this period of time. But if you get on the backside of this, where people still aren't shopping at these stores, that could lead to more bankruptcies. So there could just be this delayed response where you see everybody make it through the virus, and then we start seeing the impact across the economy. Now, what you would want is you would want a sharp V recovery, a V-shaped recovery, where you had this sharp decline down and then a sharp return back to the top. That would help save a lot of these companies from going through any bad situations. We don't know how this is going to go down exactly. Everyone is guessing. As I wrote in my column on, I believe it was uh, Monday, there's just a lot of unknowns here. And there are a lot of people who are talking about you know, how this is going to be dire, we can't reopen. Everyone's really guessing right now. We don't really know 
how this is going to play out. So keep watching the potential bankruptcies and companies talking about bankruptcies because that is going to tell you about the overall health of the debt market in particular overall because you don't want this a potential corporate debt debt bubble bursting in the middle of all of this. So watch for that. Watch for how the Paycheck Protection Program impacts some of these companies. If it's able to keep them afloat, that means we'll be able to avoid some of these bankruptcies. And then the last week, the the last this is the last full week of the mandatory shutdown for for many people this week. It'll be there'll be even more who are jumping out of it out of the beginning of May, and so you have everyone transitioning to these pre-lockdown measures. There's just going to be a lot of fear, a lot of caution that people are going to be exercising. But, you know, as long as everyone keeps moving forward, because you're dealing with a potential situation where people are experiencing sort of a Stockholm situation where they, they've been forced to hunker down for so long now that the very idea, no matter how safe or dangerous it is, of going outside that safety bubble now terrifies them. So this is sort of this weird thing where you're having to coax people back out. And we don't know if the safety level of this, but we're going to learn. And it's just that's just where we are. And so you have to push forward and get past this sort of fear and cautionary period of time. And as long as you're wise with that, you know, washing your hands, wearing a mask, doing all those sorts of things, practicing social distancing, you should be fine for the most part because these were the instructions that we had pre-lockdown. And the lockdown was meant to get the curve to flatten out because our case growth was growing at too quick of a rate. So once we're past that and get past all that, the next major battle, both economic and just in geopolitics, will shift to China. And it will be shifting towards getting Donald Trump to act and react to this Chinese aggression that we've seen in various places. And I know Republican senators are going to want more heat on China, particular people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. They are all going to be pointing towards doing more on the topic of China. Now, the question for Trump is, what is he going to do in an election year? He may not want to do much, but he may have his hands forced here by many senators. In the newsletter this week, I talked about how the United States needed to act immediately, especially on reigning in the World Health Organization. And in particular, what I added in that piece is that the United States need to, needs to move on the continent of Africa and the African Union, that is the, the constellation of countries that make up Africa, the continent of Africa. And we need to make that entire continent either neutral with regards to China, because right now they're an ally of China because of all the, the, the loans and funding that China has dumped into that continent. We need to remove Chinese influence. And because of various stress points that have popped up under this coronavirus situation, there is strain in that relationship, and the United States needs to move. This is a Cold War strategy where you try to contain China, and part of containing China is getting them out of some of these different areas. We need to work, of course, in you know the South, the South China Sea, and all around Asia, but also kicking them out of places like Africa. And when you do that, you will reduce their impact in places like the World Health Organization and the UN and all these other international bodies. So make sure to give that a, a look if you haven't read it already. 
look for more of these senators to step forward and try to get Trump to do more on the topic of China. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton in particular, he has been pointing already to uh, foreign policy, using foreign policy to to prevent um, Chinese exchange students from coming over here and stealing our technology secrets. You're going to see some probably some media freak out this week over that. That is nothing new at all. The FBI itself has put out and has been putting out constant reports on that for at least the three, last three to five years. We've arrested multiple people and professors who have been stealing secrets from the United States and sending them to the Chinese where they can break copyright infringement and basically gain all our secrets. So that's another avenue that you're going to see coming out here. So there is a lot that's going to come out once we get past the other side and once we really start looking at seriously reopening everyone and getting back to normal, how we're going to deal with China is going to be the number one topic. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out for early Friday morning, so make sure you sign up for that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.